This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Isabel Hardman. So today the government's energy security strategy is due to come out. Katie, what is the main thrust of the strategy? So I think as we've spoken about previously on the podcast, this is obviously a much, it's delayed to a degree this energy strategy in the sense when it was first announced it the idea was you'll get it in you know a week or so's time, and then there's been some wrangling between the various departments, Bayes, Treasury, also Number Ten. I think Bayes really pushing the net zero agenda, and therefore renewables. I think Boris Johnson very keen for nuclear, and then the Treasury just looking at the various bills and getting quite sweaty. So, in terms of the main thrust of it, I think nuclear and wind power. So ultimately. I think number 10 have got their way in the sense of new nuclear reactors. And in terms of figures, we're still waiting for the exact confirmation, but you could have, you know, as many as eight new nuclear reactors. Obviously, that does take time. And therefore, that is more like a a target for 2050, potentially, potentially than um, something you're about to feel the impact of. Then on wind, there's been lots of toing and froing in terms of what Tory MPs will accept on this. And also within Cabinet, you had Grant Shapps just suggesting that onshore wind turbines were an eyesore, which wasn't exactly on message when you have Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, giving interviews about, you know, how wind, both offshore and onshore, is, is the future. Obviously, figures in government has ever played down the idea of a disagreement. But um, I think the, the very fact that the main focus is in on offshore wind does show you that and particularly we expect in the Irish Sea as for onshore wind I think there is a change in terms of planning rules so you could potentially have more onshore wind Mm. but you need that to get through supportive communities so that is the uh, there's a lot of community control in terms of if you're an area that wants one you could potentially get one but I think what you're seeing is in order to avoid obviously a backlash both from Tory MPs some members of cabinet and voters they don't want to do anything too drastic on the planning side of it so are we going to get to a situation where some polling and I think Rob Colville from the CPS has been pointing that this out is actually very supportive towards you know wind power so you may have areas that do choose to do that but it is very much a there's a big process before you get to it rather than we're going to build there. Isabel, Ed Miliband, the Shadow Bay Secretary for Labour, was on the Today programme this morning and he had this to say. There is this myth around, Nick, which is that wind farms are not popular. All of the evidence shows that there is significant majority support for them. And if you live near one, you are more likely, not like, not less likely to, to support them. And what's happened here is that the chief whip of the Tory party, who's one of the people who's a, a complete oppositionalist to wind farms, has told Boris Johnson, if you want to stay leader of the Conservative Party, mate, uh, if I were you, I wouldn't go down this wind farm road. And that's why they've backed off. Our energy policy is being okay. held to ransom by Tory backbenchers. Isabel, do you think he's right in saying that it's more backbench MPs who are concerned about this rather than people who might be in these communities themselves, who, if there is onshore wind built next to them, they might get cheaper energy as well? Exactly. I think the the way of solving this is to look at the incentives uh, around onshore wind. And the strategy is, is going to have uh, proposals on incentivising it, as you say, uh, with uh, much cheaper energy bills, 
that might not have seemed that much of a big deal a few years ago when we last had the, the sort of big round of fights within the Conservative Party on onshore wind. Now, obviously, people are, are very conscious of how much their energy bills are going up by and the prospect of a reduction in their bills will be, will be very attractive. I think the other thing about this strategy is that it's all about supply. It's not about what happens uh, once it's being used, particularly within our housing stock. And so there's been quite a lot of criticism today of the fact that it doesn't do anything on insulation. Uh, Britain's housing stock is, is really leaky and uh, we waste a lot of our energy just by heating our homes and it escaping through the windows or through uninsulated walls or indeed lofts. And that would be a much quicker way of reducing people's energy bills uh, than installing eight new nuclear power plants. Now, that's not to say that, that these long term measures aren't really important and they are. And actually, the failure of the Conservative government over the past, you know, it's been more than a decade now to address Britain's supply needs has sort of come home to roost now. And they can't just announce short term fixes even though that's what's sort of being demanded and, and what critics are pointing to today, that, you know, in the next year and a half, the things in this strategy are not going to cut people's energy bills to the extent that they're not worrying about, you know, choosing between heating and eating and so on. But to not have anything to do with the uh, with cutting demand is, is a bit of a is a bit of a mistake. And Katie, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak hasn't had an easy ride of it since the spring statement, really. But a new revelation out last night, I think, puts him in more danger than he has been so far. Can you tell us about this revelation about his wife's non-dom status? Yes, this is quite a complicated story in many ways. It broke last night with The Independent, a story which is that Rishi Sunak's wife claims non-dom status. And I think we're still in the process of trying to work out what exactly it means in terms of tax she's paid and tax she should have paid. So Richard is facing questions over it and facing calls from Labour to come clean on his family's financial affairs after it emerged his wife benefits from a tax-saving scheme. Now... Richard Sunak's wife is a millionaire and therefore this is the other part of this which um, there's been lots recently about Richard Sunak's you know wealth mm-hmm. um, both his personal wealth but ultimately he is married to somebody who comes from a very wealthy family in India and how that looks optics wise during a cost of living crisis now when Ed Miliband did the morning round this morning, he was saying, you know, I do think this is legal. No one at the moment is questioning or suggesting that there is anything illegal mm-hmm. in the plans. But the line from Labour is, is it right? Is it fair? And the line from the Tories and from the Treasury is effectively that because she cannot be a dual citizen, it means money from the company that she has shares in through her family, uh, which is an Indian company, is paid in Indian taxes. Now, I think... There's clearly this, I think the story is going to roll on as people try to work out, well, how much tax have they effectively saved? If she is a non-dom, does that mean she spends time outside of the country? And I think pressure will grow on that because I just think optics wise, clearly, I think we've we've had a period where Rishi Sunak in a way could do no wrong if you think about his initial time as chancellor and therefore partly obviously if he's paying people's wages but also I think just various you know stunts his brand they tend to land very well and I I think the wealth issue you saw Labour early on try and attack on it slightly but it didn't really land and I think now clearly the opposition think that now is the time to do it so for example this story today I mean I think it was in private eye there was a story you know several months ago but now in the current political environment Mm. they're in it's clearly gaining much more traction. Isabel 
Rishi Sunak's wife is an Indian national and the law of India doesn't allow her to have dual citizenship. So do you think the story actually is dangerous for Labour to press too hard on because it does seem a bit like she has to be British in order to be married to a British politician? You know, Can it become a bit nativist in that sense? Yeah, I think that probably is a risk. I think also uh, there's a risk of Labour falling into the trap that it so often does of making this just about Rishi Sunak being rich. And I think we've seen so many times that, that voters just don't care about whether a politician is rich or not. They care if a politician is out of touch. So I think the the images of uh, Rishi Sunak filling up that car that turned out not to be his are probably more problematic than the fact that, for instance, you know, it was revealed this week that he's donated, I think, £100,000 to um, his old school, Winchester College. I don't think people really care about that so much as... As, as appearing not to sort of understand them and uh, uh, they need to just tread carefully on how they address a tax story so it doesn't just appear to be as I say just about someone's personal wealth and everything that she is doing is within the rules and Brits don't like people breaking the rules people don't like Brits don't like people bending the rules but it just needs to, to, to not just become about personal wealth. Mm-hmm. Isabel and Katie, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our podcast, uh, a weekly highlight of the best episodes, if you sign up to our free newsletter. It's at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights. Thanks for listening.